I'm David Stein. I'm a senior staff software engineer at LinkedIn, working on MLOps and machine learning infrastructure. And coffee, I like my coffee black, and I, I love Phil's coffee, and I have been mail ordering it and making it home since the pandemic. Mr. Schuyler, welcome back. Uh, this is awesome to have you here. Today we're talking with David Stein, a fellow buddy of yours from the LinkedIn days, and there's a lot we chatted about. I've got so many cool takeaways, but I want to hear yours first. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, one of the biggest takeaways uh, for me was just a lot of the talk around, uh, first of all, open sourcing uh, Feather and sort of the journey to get there. Um, and then also kind of like what's next. Uh, and it, it was really interesting hearing David's perspective uh, because it, when David started building Feather, feature stores did not exist. That, that, that was not like a term that was floating around at all. Yeah, and, what was it, 2016? Uh, so, <laughs> this was probably two, 2015, I think, when they started. Yeah, wow. Uh, maybe 2016. Uh, but it, it was, mm. you know, it, this was definitely like one of the OG feature stores for sure. Um, and so David uh, has kind of been in this space and just steeping in this problem for a very long time. Um, and I loved hearing about sort of like how they got to this point of like having an open source release and using LinkedIn really as an incubator to like build a really great product. That, that's such a good point, how he at the end mentioned LinkedIn, he could build a better product at LinkedIn than spinning out his own company because he has so much access to people like you back in the day that he could just go and sit next to and read their code or ask questions and have a relationship with and bump into in the cafeteria at lunch. Like that is such uh, insight that I hadn't even thought of because automatically you go to like, oh yeah, why wouldn't you start this on your own? You've been doing feature stores since 2016, 2015, like go and, uh, and do this. And so he gave a nice little plug as to why building it at LinkedIn was arguably a better option than going and building it out in the world. And I, I personally loved when he talked about how he does not feel like real time is being so quickly adopted because the tools are not in place. And so I think that's huge. I know there's a ton of companies that are trying to go at this real time problem. You mentioned chips. I know Tekton's starting to do a lot of their stuff with real time. There's uh, a few others that I see like it's almost every other week. I feel like somebody comes out and says like, we're the... XYZ platform for your real-time uh, data. And there's a problem there. There's definitely like people are looking for a solution. And he, the way that he broke down why it is so important because of the ability, if someone has confidence that the tools they're going to use are going to work and they're going to be able to use them quickly, then they get that many more cycles on them. They get that many more iteration time or that much more iteration time to go through it. It just makes them more likely to try that use case XYZ with, um, with real-time features and real-time uh, capabilities. I did also like how you pushed back a little and said, well, not everything is for real-time. Right, not especially you've been working on it, and I know this is a, a strong belief that you have. Like real time might be overkill a lot of the time. It's not necessarily the most important thing to have these real time features coming through because the features aren't going to change over the course of an hour that much. So that was huge. And at the risk of just babbling on a little bit more, I also wanted to talk about when he when he said the idea of making things more simple so that machine learning engineers can understand what they're working on and then decoupling features from code that like that kind of blew my mind and having this features as something that engineers and whether it's data engineers or data scientists or machine learning engineers they can reason with they can look at they can change and it's irrespective of the code that built the model so that that was a huge one. It's 
probably one that is not such a big surprise to people, but you know, I got a thick skull and it takes a while for things to enter into my mind. And this finally was, he, he put it in an eloquent way so that I understood. So David Stein, he is a machine learning engineer on the platform, on the Feather platform at LinkedIn. And we talked to him about so much good stuff today. Uh, and that's it, man. I don't have anything else. Do you have anything else you want to mention? It, only that it was a pleasure getting to chat with David again. David is a careful thinker, and uh, I, I always appreciate, uh, regardless of how loudly I would rant at LinkedIn, he <laughs> always found a way to respond calmly. So I uh, really, really appreciated the opportunity to chat with him again. Yeah, it seems like he would have been awesome to work with. I'm sure you enjoyed that. And I know that you you told me just before we hit record, like you would happily work with him again. Uh, and so we do got to give a shout out to you're having a happy hour in LA for the MLOps community. Yeah, tomorrow night. There it is. By, well, it's probably like a week ago airs, by the time you know. this... <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. So, but you're going to be doing more. So if anybody's in LA and they want to hang out with Skylar or Hod or any of the LA crew, then like there's a whole meetup page. We've got meetups happening all over the globe in real life because we're sick of being behind screens and we've done enough virtual events in the last two years. Let's get out, meet each other. And hopefully um, we're going to be giving away fun things like at certain meetups i was just talking to the berlin crew and we're going to be giving away um raspberry pies for different um trivia contests that we're doing so we're going to try and make the in real life meetups fun and a good time you're just doing the happy hour maybe later on it's going to develop into a full-blown meetup let's see all right so without further ado we're getting into it with david with this one i think we should start with the fact that skylar and david both knew each other back in the day when skylar was working at linkedin and this is a reunion of sorts yeah i'm definitely super happy to see david again i uh, really enjoyed working with him in the past and so glad, glad to see he's doing well yeah i was just gonna say likewise skylar it's really great to you know to be here again with you uh for sure so since the time of working together, you, David, have been very busy because you created this feature store that LinkedIn uses. And then you not only created it and we're using it at LinkedIn, uh, later Skylar can tell us if you guys were using that back in his day, but you open sourced it. So I want to get into the feature store. I want to get into just the ML infrastructure at LinkedIn, where you think MLOps is going, and then the whole experience of open sourcing something, because I know that can be a bit of a beast and how it's been so far. I just got to comment one thing before I ask you the first question. I love this background you've got. It reminds me of like when Neo and Morpheus jump into the matrix right before they jump in and they're like, everything's white. And then all of the different shelving comes in around them. I'm expecting shelving to come in around you at any moment when you have to talk about the different tools that you used at LinkedIn. So, but anyway, man, why don't we start out with this? Like, can you give us just a bit of background on Feather and what exactly this feature store is? We probably know what a feature store is. I'm guessing a lot of the people that are listening have heard it many, many times uh, before, but... What is Feather's unique feature store-ness? Sure. So Feather started out really like six years ago. It had a different name internally at LinkedIn for a lot of its history. So Skylar would know about it probably mostly by its name Frame that we've also talked about publicly. I think it's mentioned in the blog post about Feather. Um, but yeah, we at LinkedIn years ago, because we've been we've been doing ML, using it in production for a lot of LinkedIn businesses for a long time, like more than 10 years. Recommendation systems for the newsfeed, for advertising, for notifications, relevance, for all different kinds of things. And there's lots of like, you know, research papers and other blog posts that LinkedIn has put out about a lot of these applications. We've been doing a lot of these things for a long time and a huge issue 
that we uh, encountered is that preparing features and managing the features, so the inputs to machine learning workflows, is really it's a big part of the of the challenge in kind of operationalizing and managing machine learning workflows. So um, we were even saying that uh, it's in some of the large uh, machine learning applications, it was even like the hardest or the most complicated, burdensome thing to actually manage these feature data preparation workflows that had been growing for years and different generations of people on the team, you know, like years of turnover and new engineers and researchers coming in and adding a new feature here, a new feature there, adding a, a join here, a join there. You get, you, we started to see these giant, um, complicated uh, workflows. Yeah. Uh, kind of for using like Azkaban, which is LinkedIn's kind of uh, internal version of Airflow that's, often, that's also open source. Basically like, uh, all of these big data processing workflows that have gotten really complicated that really were trying to do something that I thought was simple, should be seen as a simple thing, which is define a set of features, compute them from their source data, load them into the context for training, and then be ready to do the same thing for online and production. So um, the, I guess I could say that, to, to say that a little more, more simply, uh, feature preparation is like the hardest thing one of the hard, hardest parts of actually doing uh, applied ML uh, at scale for a large project for a team over time. And so we built Feather as a solution to kind of simplify feature preparation to make it so that you define a named set of features and then get those features by their names in the training context and in the inference context, instead of having to like manage a whole bunch of application specific workflows to do that. Uh, that's sort of the origin story. I'll let you steer me with, with more questions about what facets you want to go into. Yeah, definitely. Um, and you know, uh, one of the things that uh, is really awesome that I just want to point out is you talking about how you started this project like six years ago. And I, I remember the very, very earliest days of Frame. And uh, it's really cool to see the milestone and landmark of like actually seeing it become like a full-fledged open source project. Um, and uh, Mostly, first, I want to just congratulate you because, like, obviously, that's a lot of work and a lot of cycles mm. that you had to go through, a lot of learnings. Um, and so, uh, one of the things that I was curious as you were you were talking about uh, this is, you know, you have like six years of lessons to learn. What do you think are like the the lessons that you learned in building this? Because, like, you know, one of the things uh, when we were talking to uh, Hian the other week, uh, you know. LinkedIn was in this interesting position where like feature stores didn't really exist, so to speak, when you started this. And so you're kind of like uh, one of the people that sort of spearheaded, you know, the, the creation of feature stores. And so like, I'm sure there's tons of interesting lessons you learned along the way about what works in feature stores, what doesn't, how to get people to use them. So really just curious to get your take as what stands out as important learnings. There's so many lessons, uh, both in terms of the you know, how to help a team deliver some, uh, you know, some technology mission, especially when it's in a new space like this, where we're still collectively, I think as an industry, figuring out what the right solution for feature management platform and for feature stores should look like. Um, leading a team to deliver it and uh, uh, refocusing the needs based on what we hear from users. Uh, there's, there's many lessons in there. Um, I think, one of the things that I think was most important is the importance of, it almost sounds obvious, but having really clean concepts that are going to work well for users. What, like something like this with the feature store, uh, we, I view it as a, um, it is a device to actually help the users who are the machine learning engineers think more simply about the system, about the 
machine learning platform, the thing that they need to be deploying their models into and running them. And when we're trying to make it easier for people to think about what they need to do, you need to have really good, clean concepts. You need to have named things that are that resonate with people and the work they need to do. Getting those concepts really clear um, early on is really helpful because you have to course correct less later on. And when we make mistakes, like if there are, if we make things more complicated than they should have been, if we didn't polish down uh, tightly enough some core concepts, those become, you know, increasingly uh, challenging things that need that, you know, the, the cost of fixing those problems goes up later on. Um, so, I mean, there's many different kinds of lessons there, but the, uh, um, clean concepts starting from the point of asking users and working together with users to figure out how do you want to specify things? How do you want to specify your feature dependency set of your model? How do you want to specify a feature definition? Can we use like a imagined uh, configuration or imagined DSL as a sort of a thought device to shape how we want to think about the things that we want to build? Uh, the importance of those things early on in a uh, design process, I think, uh, contributed to the um, success and longevity, I think, of what we built for this project. Um, I don't know, but there's many other angles to go here. Um, hopefully that covers that question. I don't know if there's yeah. different angles in there you want to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's great. Um, yeah, and I think uh, that's definitely uh, a lesson that resonates with me. Uh, seeing a lot of the uh, churn that we had and trying to figure things out early on, I definitely recall like unclear semantics. Like, definitely uh, made my brain hurt. But uh, yeah, so you know, one of the things I'm sure that, that a lot of listeners would be curious about because uh, I, I don't think everybody has a good understanding of the scale of LinkedIn. Um, and so would love to uh, talk about the, the scale that you're handling from a few different angles. One, how many teams are using Feather? Uh, two, you know, how much data like size are we talking about? Um, and uh, I think people would love to kind of like shoot at the, uh, those bits on scale. Sure. So I, I wish I had my, you know, cheat sheet of the LinkedIn a published, you know, like yeah. known and publicly released uh, numbers about these things. I, I know that <laughs> the, uh, you know, just in terms of scale, uh, LinkedIn obviously has many hundreds of millions of members mm -hmm. and then numbers for, um, I, I assume that there are some numbers that folks who are really interested in LinkedIn scale can look up things that are probably described on blog posts in terms of the scale of the number of people who are coming to the website every day, mm -hmm. using different products, the number of different kinds of entities that need to, you know, the, the number, I mean, just the scale of, of, the, of the number of people using the product. Um, and I think that most people who use the LinkedIn product, who, for example, use LinkedIn feed and know, you know, you can scroll and scroll and scroll and the diversity and variety of kinds of things that will show up there. You can think of the scale of some of these kinds of applications that we're dealing with. It's, very, it's a very, mm -hmm. I would say, like a large, one of the, uh, you know, it, 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 I wouldn't consider it to be like at the, the, the magnitude of scale of something like in terms of traffic load and things like that, or in terms of the data volume. Uh, it, it's it's going to be like, a, it's a, one of the larger use cases, right? And I, I, without speaking to the specific numbers of these things. Um, number of teams using Feather, um, this is, I guess it slightly depends on how you count in terms of sub teams, big teams, but there's like dozens of teams who are using, uh, Feather, mostly internal users know it by those same internal kind of code names that, Skylar, that you knew, uh, particularly Frame, although there's a couple of other pieces inside that also are wrapped in the, the Feather umbrella. Um, the... Uh, the history kind of went like this project started in 2016 and then really got implementation in 2017 with a collaboration with engineers from various different machine learning, like applied ML teams who were building different parts of the stack. Uh, we, it was a very kind of close partnership kicking this things off and, and the, kicking this thing off. And there was a lot of um, early 
kind of grassroots enthusiasm about this idea because it was this, you know, widely commonly understood issue that uh, there's a big opportunity in simplifying the feature preparation aspect of building machine learning application and workflow. Uh, so we, we had like, you know, many adopters in the first few years uh, that helped us build this. And then uh, we went through additional, you know, migration phases in the years after that, uh, where I am pretty sure it is a good majority of the applied ML use cases at LinkedIn that are using this technology. So I, I want to take a little bit of a step back because there's something that you said uh, in that answer the, a, a few questions ago where you were talking about how Feather is this device for a machine learning engineer to think more simply about the system and interact more simply with the system. And I, I thought that was something that I hadn't heard before because it's like you're taking basically this very, very complex thing and you're serving it up to the machine learning engineer in a way that they don't have to understand the whole complexity of everything that's happening, but you're making sure that they do understand the important parts and the parts that are pertinent for them. Am I understanding this correctly? Yeah, I guess to add a little bit to that, the idea of having a feature for like, an, especially an entity feature, which is like the big important case for feature stores, where you have features about users or features about job postings or features about feed items or about advertisements that need to be managed and fetched and looked up. The idea that you have a named set of these things that can be captured in a registry that can be reasoned about apart from the code that creates them or apart from the models that use them was sort of a uh, an innovation really. Before feature stores and before Feather, you would have named variables for features in like model code, but they would be, they were kind of coupled with the model code or coupled with the workflow that's doing the data processing. The idea that, that there should be like a, like a named entity, named like a, almost like an artifact or a named um, abstract entity, like a, a thing that is a feature that is registered in a registry and has a name um, and that you can rely on that name, meaning the same thing in the different parts of the ecosystem, right? Like in the experimentation, offline, you know, sandbox environment, and also in the, on, uh, the, you know, the online production serving environment, that you can use that same name and expect it to mean the same thing, and you just get to ask the infrastructure to provide that feature for you, and you can rely on it being the same, you know, like in the uh, training time and in, in, at inference time and that the underlying machinery is going to make sure that that is uh, the same. Uh, being able to rely on that set of named features in a registry. First you add the features and then you use the features is sort of a, a simplifier because before that, uh, yeah, like the engineers working on these applications would have to think to a much greater extent about the details how this data preparation needs to work. They might have different names for, uh, you know, feature columns in one context and, you know, other names for them in an inference online context. And they'd have to write code that would need to remember which feature corresponded to which. Having these things ordered in a common registry with common infrastructure that can provide it does kind of simplify the things you need to think about. You're like, okay, I have a set of features. I import them into my model context, kind of like you import dependencies into your code at the top of your Java or, you know, C++ file or something like that. Getting that cleanliness around named importable features does help you think about what you need to do in terms of building and deploying a machine learning model. I love this idea of decoupling the features that you can reason with from the code too. And, and then bringing that standardization so that across the company, you understand that you have this named thing that is going to be the same whether or not I am here or there. And it reminds me, this is a horrible, uh, uh, like, 
analogy, but I saw Skylar drinking some coffee and it's like going to a Starbucks. I can go to Starbucks anywhere around the world, right? And I know that the coffee is going to be pretty much the same. Uh, it's any kind of fast food chain that you have that dependent or you have the predictability and when you go in there, it's going to be the same. And so that's kind of what it feels like you were trying to do is make that predictability across the organization so that when somebody is messing around with features, they know that they're messing with this thing that is not uh, that is the same across the org. And so I'm wondering, too, when it comes to open sourcing this, it, because it feels like that that helps with the standardization piece. And I actually was just recently listening to a podcast uh, with the founder of HashiCorp. And he was talking about how open sourcing in his mind, the key to open sourcing, especially for HashiCorp, was to drive standardization. Was that at all in your minds when you decided to open source it? He is the queen of MLOps.org. And this is your daily dose of MLOps. Well, if you are that serious about the MLOps, you have to immerse yourself in the MLOps content. The best way to do it is to subscribe to the MLOps community podcast. All great people are here on this podcast. So good luck and keep learning. So I'm not familiar with the with the example that you just mentioned. So I, I don't I can't compare to that specifically, but I know of other examples where of, of, of uh, projects and systems where the open sourcing of a thing is specifically a, uh, a play to standardize. Like I'm thinking about things like Onyx, for example. It's like, let's define a common language uh, for how model you know, graphs can be represented you know, for purposes that brings. I would say the reason why we open sourced Feather is maybe a little different from that. Um, we, uh, at LinkedIn, we have a kind of a culture of open sourcing our infrastructure pieces that we build that we're proud of and that we think may be of interest and use to the outside world. Uh, there are many examples of other LinkedIn projects that have been open sourced and, uh, you know, that have, you know, made an impact in the industry. People talk about Kafka, Pino, Data Hub, and there's others. Uh, so we believed with Feather that we had a interesting solution to a problem we saw and we're hearing about increasingly from folks at other companies. And so we, you know, in the same kind of spirit of open sourcing, generally useful things that we build at LinkedIn, we wanted to put this to put this out there because we do think that our approach to the problem of organizing feature preparation is like a good one when compared against kind of like what is commonly available out there. So we, we, we did, uh, that's kind of the, you know, part of the thinking behind you. Know, why, why would we do that? It, there's a lot of benefits, right? Also to open sourcing, to undertaking that process of, of open sourcing internal tech. Like there's a whole effort around, uh, cleaning things up, getting it ready for, you know, the public eye, uh, improving your documentation a little more, cleaning up some facets of things, doing a lot of that work that we also would do for internal projects, but it's sort of like a motivating occasion to do it. You know, there's, there's various benefits, right, that you get. Um, but we did believe it was useful. And we also have a partnership with some, uh, with a team of folks at Microsoft Azure uh, who've also published a blog post about this collaboration where they, uh, you know, kind of got a early inside look at what we were thinking about open sourcing with our feature store solution. They were interested in, uh, you know, working with us on this. So we've got some collaboration on this open source project from folks at, at Azure uh, who've done, uh, made really awesome contributions in terms of making Feather easy to use and easy to try and deploy on Azure. So there's a lot of stuff about that in the blog post that uh, that they published and on our GitHub page, uh, folks can go there and see the, how it's been really made into like a, uh, a cloud native solution, uh, that's easy to try on Azure. Uh, so all of the, you know, the interest from our partners at Azure and the interest from folks we've talked to in the industry, these are all kind of factors that led us to undertake this 
initiative of open sourcing a feather that had been in use for LinkedIn for, for quite some time. That's awesome. So, you know, what, one of the things I was just uh, remembering, uh, you know, a long time ago, I stumbled across this website, uh, futurestore.org, um, and uh, I had looked through it and noticed, hey, LinkedIn doesn't have anything here. And I, I had pinged David at the time. I was like, hey, man, what's up? Why, why, why isn't your work here? And uh, I just went and checked, and Feather's there now. And uh, it's really interesting seeing just how many feature stores are represented there. Um, and I'm sure you, being somebody who is uh, steeped in that in that that problem space, you're probably aware of uh, how other people have, have built their feature stores. And I'm just curious, uh, what are some of the things that you see as uh, differences between Feather and maybe some other feature stores, um, especially differences that might be important, maybe things that are better, worse? Sure. There are a lot of solutions out there. And something I think I mentioned earlier was about how the industry, we're all kind of together still deciding on like what a good feature store even really means as a, you know, what is the, what is the uh, requirement set? What are the functionalities needed? Um, it is, it's still, you know, like in development, even the names, you know, the name feature store. Um, mm -hmm. And, and what it even really means. Like, um, there's been some actually shift in terms of what that means. So if you look at the solutions there, I think that there you see a variety of approaches. You see some that are um, much more like a data sync, like a, just a data store where you put computed feature data that can then, you know, make it available mm -hmm. in the online context. Uh, you see other solutions that provide different amounts of capability for actually defining feature views or defining features using transformations on raw data, and then varying levels of sophistication in terms of the kinds of features that can be defined, whether you have support for uh, defining dynamic features that apply over time windows before, you know, up until the event that you're making a prediction about, um, support for um, uh, features of features or defining features as uh, that are computed as a function of the values of other features. There's various kinds of capabilities there. Um, there's, um, there is, yeah, so to kind of like maybe summarize that, there are, um, there, there are some very simple solutions, and then there's some more complex solutions that are maybe tied to specific technologies and provide certain capabilities. Our approach is that we kind of think that there should be like a Swiss army knife, as it were, about like making it easy for a machine learning engineer to define features based on data assets that already exist in their organization. So that means an expression language that lets you define Feature, you know, like that, that do, uh, uh, that help you with a good amount of the last mile of data munging in order to actually prepare a feature into something that would be, you know, close enough to like a tensor form that can be easily just injected into like a context for running a model or training a model. So that's Swiss Army knife and the kinds of things that are supported in the expression language and in the APIs. Um, we have a set of those things based on what we found to be useful for LinkedIn use cases and that we think are generally useful. Um, and what we want to, you know, what, we, what we're building towards is to have um, that Swiss Army knife be, you know, cover 80% or more of what people need to do and where there's UDF support for the remaining 20% and where you have really good management capability around those things and where you have really good real-time support for those things where you're able to properly simulate, backfill, and compute the values of real-time time-variant features that are made with the Swiss Army Knife APIs and expression languages, to be able to do that really well and then to be able to deploy those and use those things in production. Um, those are aspects that we are, we're pushing on and, and building for with, with Feather. And uh, some of the solutions, if you look at like the, the long list of things that are out there, um, are much more like the the storage element, uh, so and, and that aren't covering, you know, the, the Swiss Army knife of transformations and feature engineering kind of capabilities. Um, so, yeah. So I, in a way, it's more than a store. Like there, there's actually, 
the, the name feature store and that and for some of these solutions it does include more than storage it includes things like feature engineering toolkits and things like that um, we're it's a little more than the store right it also includes those kinds of capabilities that we see as kind of an important part of the solution to the problem i muted myself so i didn't interrupt uh your <laughs> your answer um yeah so uh definitely concur with you know we're still figuring things out. Uh, there's obviously a lot of, like when somebody says feature store, there's some ambiguity about what that means. Um, and, and personally, I, I've often felt frustrated at some feature stores that people are like, why don't you use this feature store? And when I look at it, it's a glorified database. You know, it just gives me somewhere to like store the data. It's like, well, you know, I don't know how much value add that's, that's having. Um, and so cool to see that there's like such a wide variety of different uh, feature stores. But, you know, as somebody who's been in the trenches for a long time, I would love to just get a sense of, you know, where, where do you think this is going? Where, where do you think feature stores are evolving towards? What, what, what's next for feature stores or, or maybe more generally MLOps? Yeah, I think that what is next for the things that I pay attention to, there are, um, there's almost like a hierarchy of needs. Uh, we started out with having named features as entities people can reason about and can register and know what types they have and count on them to mean one thing you know, across contexts, training and inference and so on. Then we added a bunch of you know Swiss Army knife kind of capabilities to define certain common features based on raw data sets. But there's like a expanding set of, of hierarchy of needs, kinds of additional things that you want to have to support an ecosystem around that. Um, in terms of really uh, easy visualization of the trends of the data trends behind the features or anomaly detection for making, you know, like making it easy for humans to understand the features that are defined and make sure that, you know, that they're looking the same way over time. Like there's things of that nature, like how can I understand my current installation better and better? Can we continually polish and improve that. That's one direction where things are going to improve. The timeliness, the ability to have time, uh, to have uh, highly dynamic features that are based on some window of time that is in a rolling window and to make sure the support for that is really, really, really solid um, is another really huge area where, um, in my opinion, there's sort of a um, an underuse in the industry of real-time signals because of the relative difficulty of actually dealing with um, the you know extreme processing uh, machinery which has come a long way but is still not quite at the point in my point of view where from what i've seen where machine learning engineers are ready to pick that stuff up and apply it unless they really know that they really need to do it for a specific problem it's not yet at the point where like it's in the Swiss army knife where you can like try it quickly and validate the idea that some real-time signal is going to add a lot of value. So you can just like add it and deploy it. We're not at that level yet, but getting there and feathers making a, a big play in that direction, is going to be like really big in terms of helping that um, a lot of applications in the industry move towards using real-time signals more, making better use of, um, you know, dynamic real-time compute and things like that. Um, Wait, is if, I if I understand this correctly, uh, you're seeing that because it's so hard to do real time and because there aren't the proper tools around it, people are just like, eh, I'm not going to try for that because it seems or it is too complex. Absolutely. So I, um, it, it's, yes, I think that people from what I've seen, people are ready to try things that they know that they can try in a reasonable window of time and get an answer about, you know, like that they can try reliably, that they that they know how to use it. They can build something, mm -hmm. uh, see what the effect is going to be within a time window that is within their planning cycle and where, you know, because like the, the longer that takes, uh, the more risky it is to actually try out something. I almost think about like, you know, I mean, digging for oil or digging for gold or something like that. The easier it is to kind of know where to look and to be able to try, get in, get out quickly. And then it, it, it has a really big effect in terms of the productivity of that exploration. 
if you have a tool that lets you survey the field really quickly versus if it's going to take you a year to survey the field, that's going to matter a lot. So definitely, I think that um, real-time signals are one example of something that, you know, there's been a huge amount of interest in this generally over the past many years. Since you know, you have uh, open source solutions, you have startups and other companies that are building support for just real-time data processing and stream processing. That's just like a thing by itself. But really the application of that stuff for use in machine learning, in my opinion, once we have better uh, tools, like we're building feature stores that make it easy to do that stuff, uh, we'll have a big uh, spike, I think, in the interest of actually applying that stuff for, for machine learning problems, in my opinion. Uh, at least that's how I see it. I'm kind of curious to know what Skyler thinks about that and if he agrees. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, first, first time question's been flipped on me. But uh, so a, a lot of this reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you saw uh, some time ago, Chip had a post uh, that uh, got a lot of notoriety. Machine learning is going real time. You're not ready. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think I agree with a lot of things in that post. Um, one thing that I, and this is a bias based on the problems that I, I tend to work on now. Uh, I, I look at a lot of problems, and there are a lot of problems where actually getting more real-time signals is not super helpful. Um, there, there, there are definitely, like, I think in most problems, there are probably at least some collection of signals that, like, yeah, it's really useful to get it real-time. So as an example, I, I work mostly in the space of mental health. And so if somebody indicates they're suicidal, yeah, I want to know that ASAP, you know, and I want my models to understand that ASAP. Uh, but like somebody's like mental health doesn't like change instantly, you know, like if I got more data up to date right now, probably I'm going to make a prediction that's like pretty close to what it was like an hour ago. And so I, I think like it really depends on the type of problem you're working on. And I think that the reality is a lot of where the money has been uh, in machine learning and uh, as far as applications go, those are places where, yes, having more real time stuff matters, like think advertising, like you, most of the state-of-the-art advertising systems now are like doing n like nearline training even because like you, there's so much more to be gained there. Um, so I, I definitely agree. I think it's going to go there, but I almost think it's like an artifact of like the types of problems where money comes from <laughs> rather than being like representative of all machine learning problems and like being representative of like what everybody needs, so to speak. But I definitely concur yeah. with the, the uh, with the uh, view that uh, it's great to make this stuff easier because, like, the alternative is like probably like in most problems, there's at least some collection of signals that'd be useful to get real time. And I think the reality is like even in places where there are those signals, people just aren't using them because there's such a big gap to like actually uh, implementing it. Yeah, it totally Which makes was... sense. But yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Demetrius. Uh, well, I was kind of going to follow that up with uh, a question to you, David, around what some of the use cases you feel would be strong for this real time that aren't necessarily being leveraged right now, right? Like, and may, is it just more of what Skylar was talking about, like that stuff, that big money making stuff? Or are there places that you feel like we could leverage real time or just not because it's so difficult? Um, I, I guess I would say that we have, we do have a, like at LinkedIn, we do have a lot of use cases actually that are doing real-time processing. We have a lot of support for this and we have even like, I think there's some other blog posts and things like that, that we've released recently about real-time, uh, computation, real-time, you know, feature preparation or model training, things like this. Uh, so it is definitely used for some use cases where it is known and proven to be important. Um, and we do get a lot of value out of doing that at LinkedIn. Um, I think that just to clarify what I'm saying before, what I was saying before, um, I'm I am just in terms of personally as a uh, focusing on like MLOps infrastructure. I really like to look for what I think are problems where if the infrastructure was a little better, it would actually unlock capabilities and, and uh, um, investments in valuable investments for users because they're going to be like, okay, now that I can quickly try something, I'm going to try that thing more and then find out like, gosh, this is really useful. Like being able to do that uh, 
providing tools that let people try and find good solutions that would have been prohibitively complicated to try before, or at least more complicated than they were willing to spend, if that makes sense, finding that kind of, uh, uh, that, that, that edge, uh, and trying to move the kind of critical point of investment into something and move it, uh, to make it easier because the tooling is better. So it's easier to try is, is the thing that I'm particularly interested in. I agree that there are definitely, uh, use cases where, uh, Real-time signals, for example, matter much more, or where they, where they matter less. Um, you know, when you have when you're predicting things that are more stable, you obviously mm -hmm. it's not going to do that much to add you know real-time capability. But there are uh, you know like certainly for personalization, where you're responding to real-time user behavior, you're trying to understand you know like how to help a user by putting the right search results in front of them based on something that they just you know indicated recently. You know things like that. Uh, I do think that there are a lot of places where we would get a increasing use with slicker and you know tools around that thing. Hopefully, that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so and uh, that's definitely a future I, I'm excited for. Uh, seeing how many uh, people struggle with uh, doing anything real time. Uh, I, I recall there were several times at LinkedIn where it was like, "Hey, we know that this would be a great real time signal to have," and uh, you know, I think. Uh, a lot of the real-time features that we ended up having, it was a journey to get there, you know? Um, and so uh, I'm very, very excited for that future, for sure. Um, you're about to say something, Demetrius? All right. Uh, so one of the things I was thinking about, you know, uh, again, a uh, long time to get to this point of like having an open source release. Um, and I'm just curious if there's anything about like uh, th through the process um, and, and maybe not even just Feather, but maybe your work more generally or more broadly. Uh, is there anything that stands out as something that you're particularly proud of in that work? Um, well, I'm very proud of the work that the team has done in terms of being able to actually do the heavy lift of, move, of getting a project that has been in existence for a long time and turning it into an open source solution that can be used outside of the context in which it was incubated and originally built. Uh, that's definitely, uh, you know, not easy to do. Uh, so there was a lot of, uh, uh, you know, it was, like I said, a heavy lift. There are uh, you know, folks on the team who uh, worked very hard to make that happen. Uh, we had help from our uh, you know, partners at Azure that I mentioned previously, who have you know done a lot of work to you know to make this thing uh, useful in the you know outside of LinkedIn context, even though we had built it for years within LinkedIn. You know, anyone who's built a big software project at a at a medium-sized to big company uh, over the course of many years knows that like you know over time you do get like a lot of uh, you get layers of you know, dependencies and relationships with other internal tech and the ability to actually um, rationalize those things and lift and make a, a release that, that works outside the context is obviously a lot of work. So I'm, I'm just super proud that we uh, we delivered that and that we are, uh, you know, we're, 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 that this solution is is out there right now producing value for, for uh, other teams and, and companies outside LinkedIn. I just think it's... Uh, it's really, really cool to see that at this point in the life cycle of this project that that I've been working on for a long time. Uh, so that's the the thing that I'm most proud of, I guess. Like, uh, if that answers what you're, yeah. what so you're asking modest. there. Yeah, I love it. So if you were to get to go back in time and do one thing differently when you were open sourcing Feather, what would you do differently? Because I'm sure there was a lot that you learned along that journey of open sourcing it. Yeah, this is interesting. I there's a lot of reasons why we do and don't do things that are you know based on you know the focus and the priorities of teams and the needs of internal users and um, you know various factors right over over time that are kind of hard to um, kind of hard to you know fully characterize. So it's not like you know I, I could go back and change. It, it, it it's not like I would go back and take a different turn because I think we respond you know we 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 went on the the timing and the roadmap we did for you know those various kinds of reasons but I would say open sourcing sooner would have been nice like I we, it would have been uh, it would have been uh, easier to do earlier on and there would have been fewer 
bumps in the road. But then again, there are reasons why we didn't do that. We were very focused on supporting uh, LinkedIn internal users and building what we thought was a good solution and uh, supporting different kinds of migrations, you know, doing these kinds of, you know, obvious things. Uh, so we, we didn't get to it sooner, but if I could change anything about the timeline with regards to open sourcing, or uh, I would have done it, uh, I would have done it earlier. I, I think that uh, we, uh, it's cool that we've been in this domain for a while and uh, that would have been one thing. Um, other than that, yeah, I'll probably leave that one at, at that. No, that's a perfect answer, and that's a perfect one to end end on. I really appreciate you taking the time. I learned so much, man. It, you're such a deep thinker, and you obviously like choose your words very carefully. I love how much thought you put into each sentence, as opposed to me. I just kind of like verbally vomit all over the place and <laughs> ramble on. But I. I Ah, oh, man, there's so many great takeaways on this, and Skylar and I are going to talk about them right now. I can't thank you enough for coming on here, David. And we will hopefully be seeing more of you when it comes to Feather. I think the last question is, and we can leave this at the very, very end, so in case we need to bleep it out, <laughs> we can. When are you going to spin out Feather into an, its own company and do that playbook? <laughs> well, yeah, there's no plan to do that. Uh, I think that one of the things that I tell people, and that is, you know, this is really, uh, this is really the truth, is that LinkedIn is actually a great place to incubate a technology like Feather, because we have a huge variety of just businesses and teams that are doing machine learning, large scale, small scale, different kinds of problem domains like there's a and, and the company is big but it's not like too big you can still meet people and bump into them in the cafeteria if you're in the actual office and learn from users about what matters to them kind of like how I know Skylar because he was really on one of the user teams the internal users within LinkedIn that uh, uh, you know was, was making use of, of the feather frame you know and, and the uh, the other machine learning platform tools that we've been working on and trying to build and improve over the years so we being able to have close relationships with a large variety of applied ml users is like a great place to build a really good solution uh just in terms of like, like your question demetrius i had a friend who uh have a friend who asked me like years ago like when like five or six years ago when I was, you know, thinking of this you know, new project, uh, I had a question from a friend like, oh, you're building like, a new project around this interesting thing. Like, why are you doing this at LinkedIn? Like, why wouldn't you just go like try to, you know, talk to some, someone get funding? And I was like, well, you know, I actually think that it's like, I can do a better job of building a better thing in the context of LinkedIn because I have, you know, I know all these users, I know these problems, I can talk with them, I can see their code, we can sit together, we, we can build something there. So that's kind of uh, the answer to your question. I would, I would turn around and say that like LinkedIn's actually a great place to do this stuff. There's no plan to make it a uh, another company. If folks want to actually come and help build uh, really great MLOps tools for LinkedIn, uh, I mean like for you know for the industry, you can come do that at LinkedIn, uh, and I'd be happy to talk to anyone who wants to do that. There we go. You hiring? Uh, yes, we are hiring. There we so, go. Uh, you can. Uh, uh, you can ping me if you're, if you're interested. Awesome. Dude, well, sweet. We'll end on that. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again. 